Do you need help with your journey following Jesus? Has your Bible reading brought up some interesting questions? Um, I, I need a prayer request. Is I've heard um, pastors talk about you can't get to heaven just with good deeds. I was just wondering what you guys think. Is, the, is there a correlation between the seventh trumpet and Revelations as the last trumpet, or is he talking about some other trumpet? Finally, a place to get answers. We're ready to take your prayer request and answer your Bible questions. Call in at 303-690-3000. Let's join Calvary Live right now. Good afternoon. Welcome to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Cady from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado, taking your calls and texts live on the air today. This is the show where you can call in with your questions about the Bible or anything else going on in your life that you'd like prayer for or that you'd like uh, biblical counsel on. That's what we're here to do. So just give us a call. The number is 303 303- Six nine zero three thousand. It's three zero three six nine zero three thousand, or you can text us at seven two zero three three six zero eight nine seven. That's seven two zero three three six zero eight nine seven for the text line. Hey, we're so glad that you're tuning in with us today. We want to welcome those of you who are listening in Colorado and up into Southern Wyoming on Grace FM, up and down the Front Range, eighty nine point seven on your FM dial in the northern front range and in the area around Colorado Springs and, and Pueblo, you're on at 101.7 FM. So glad that you're tuning in with us today. We also want to welcome those of you who listen on Hope FM in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Maryland, as well as those who tune in on Grace, or sorry, Truth FM. So Hope FM in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Maryland, and Truth FM in Tennessee and parts of North Carolina and Kentucky. Welcome to the show. Just a reminder that those of you listening on Hope FM on the East Coast and in tr- on Truth FM in the Appalachian area, you are hearing this program on a one-week delay. So just keep that in mind that you guys are hearing the show a week after it aired live. So a one-week delay, but we would still love to hear from you. We still want you to be part of this community of people tuning in and uh, growing together having our questions answered, seeking the Lord and praying for one another. And you can do that just by giving us a call and texting us. And then you guys kind of have a unique opportunity, those of you who listen on Hope FM and Truth FM, that you get to tune in the following week and you get to hear yourself on the radio. Maybe you tell some friends, some family members. It's a great way to get them knowing about the station and knowing about this show. So we also want to greet those of you who are listening online. We know there are so many of you, increasing number, who listen on our website, gracefm.com, and on the Grace FM app. By the way, if you don't have the Grace FM app yet, we really encourage you to go and get it. It's free. You can just go into the App Store for your device, and you can download it for free. And then you'll have it on your phone, and wherever you are in the world, you'll be able to tune in live to all the great programs on Grace FM, including this one. So for those of you who are tuning in online on the app and the website, welcome. We're so glad that you are with us. I see in a map right now of who is tuning in online. Of course, we have listeners here in um, in the Front Range area of Colorado, as well as Kansas. Looks like Dallas, Texas area, El Paso, Texas. Um, got some listeners around Tucson, Arizona, and Phoenix, Arizona, as well as Southern California, Boise, Idaho, um, somewhere in Washington State and Chicago. So we also have some listeners tuning in in Ukraine as well. So welcome to you. 
So glad that you are with us. Again, this is the show where you can call in with your questions about the Bible or anything else that's on your heart, uh, on your mind, that you'd like biblical counsel and advice on. We are here to do that for you. And uh, the number to call is 303-690-3000. Or you can text us at 720-336-0897. Let's go to our first caller, Lori in Baltimore, Maryland. Hi, Lori. Welcome to the program. Hi. Thank you for having me. Sure. Um, Yeah, so I'm discussing with a friend who's an atheist. I mean, he's a downright, upright atheist. And he doesn't understand why the Bible, first of all, has no dates whatsoever, he claims. It has zero dates in it, but Mm, the papyrus, the papyrus, how do you you say that? Uh, Papyrus Papyrus. of Mm -hmm. Ani and the Koran. He wants to know why those books aren't more credible than the Bible and, and why they have a date to them and the Bible doesn't. Okay, well, first of all, that's a huge misnomer that the Bible does not have dates in it. I mean, um, it just shows me that your friend has probably read arguments against the Bible, but hasn't actually read the Bible. Because the Bible actually has tons of dates in it. Um, In fact, that's one of the things that makes it so incredibly credible, is that it has dates in it, and those dates are able to be corroborated with other ancient sources. So, in fact, I taught a message on this, and, oh, man, I wish I, maybe I can find my notes while we're talking. I taught a message on this, basically saying, why would, you know, the the series was titled, I Could Never Believe in a God Who. And so we kind of tackled a lot of the, the big, you know, things that people bring up against Christianity, big arguments against Christianity, or at least the most popular widespread ones. And we just took eight weeks, I think actually nine weeks, and we answered these in, in order. We, we even did an online poll. Several hundred people wrote in. And uh, one of the ones we talked about was, you know, I could never believe in a God who gave us a faulty Bible. And um, I'm going to pull that up for you. But you can also find it on our church website. I would really encourage you to go and listen to that because I deal with this issue about manuscripts in that message. Um, there's a whole series on our church's website. It's whitefieldschurch.com, whitefields with an S, whitefieldschurch.com. And just go in the sermon section. In that section, there's you can find the series called I Could Never Believe in a God Who. Um, but I'm going to try and pull it up just right now because I have a um, graphic that I used during that. And that graphic gave a lot of the, uh, a big response to um, some of these manuscripts that exist out there and how the Bible lines up. What the end, long and short of it is this: there are actually way more um, credible manuscripts for the Bible than for anything else that exists in antiquity, like a crazy number more. Um, so yeah, here we go. I actually found it. Okay, so let me just walk you through a few, and then I'll go back to this idea of the papyrus of Ani and some other things about the Bible. Okay. So. Um, I have this chart. It says this. Here's some of the documents um, and historical documents from the antiquity. Okay, now keep in mind the age of these things. And let's also remember that the Bible, when we're talking about the Old Testament, we're talking about a book that is over 3,000 years old in its oldest parts, and the the New Testament, of course, being almost 2,000 years old. Okay, so it's like 3,600 is roughly the age of the oldest parts of the Old Testament. So let's keep that in mind. 
But just talking about the New Testament, uh, Plato, his uh, books were written around 427 to 347 BC. The earliest manuscript is from 900 AD. So that, that time lapse there, 427 BC to the earliest manuscript dating from 900 AD. That's 900 years after Jesus. That's a time lapse of 1,200 years. And we have seven copies of that. Again, the earliest being from 900 years after Jesus. Okay, Aristotle wrote in 384 to 322 BC. The earliest manuscript is from 1100 AD. Okay, so again, that's a time lapse of 1,400 years between the original writing and the earliest manuscript that we have in existence. And there are 49 copies total, 49, okay? Tacitus was a, a Roman historian, and he wrote around the time of the apostles. So uh, that's around the year 100 AD. The earliest manuscripts are from 1100 AD, so that's a thousand years between the original writing and the earliest manuscripts that we have, and we have 20 copies of those manuscripts that are available. Um, and again, remember, those are copies that date from a thousand years after he actually wrote them. Okay, so now let's go to the New Testament. New Testament was written between the years 50 and 100 AD. The earliest manuscripts we have are from the second century AD. That means that the time in between the writing and the manuscripts we have is less than 100 years. In some cases, it's only a couple of decades max. Okay, so it's a much shorter. I mean, again, Plato, 1,200 years. Aristotle, 1,400 years. Tacitus, 1,000 years. New Testament, less than 100 years. In some cases, 20 years. Number of copies. Let's remember, Plato was 7, Aristotle 47, Tacitus 20. How many copies of manuscripts do we have to compare with each other uh, from the New Testament? 5,686. You see what I'm saying? So when we're talking about evidence for these documents being historical, these are the most credible documents from antiquity that exist. And the reason why they're so credible is because Unlike the writings of Plato, which were read by people who were interested in reading what Plato had to say, people who wrote the Bible, but not really wrote the Bible, let's say the people who then took what was written and made faithful copies of it, there was a whole class of people who were tasked with doing this in the Jewish community and then also in the Christian community because, of course, they took their... Um, they took their um, cues from how the Jewish people had treated the Old Testament. And so you might read in the New Testament about people called scribes. These are people whose entire job it was to make handwritten copies of the Bible. And when they would do that, don't think it's just like you sitting in your basement making handwritten copies of the Bible and nobody's watching. No, they would do this in groups of three. As one person was, was copying one manuscript to the other, the other two would be looking over his shoulder, making sure he didn't make a mistake. And if he did, they would correct it, and they would both sign off on it. Okay, so this was a system, and it was a reliable system. Now, let's go back to the Old Testament. Now, do we ever have dates? Of course we have dates. We, we have names of rulers who ruled at certain times. For example, even as early as Genesis, 
um, chapter 12, when we get into the story of Moses, or sorry, not Moses, Abraham. We get into the story of Abraham, and we start reading the names of rulers who lived during these periods, right? So he goes to Egypt. You might remember that story. And there's a ruler there who he sells his wife to. It's always a bad idea, but he did it nonetheless. We see that there were cities. The city he's from, Abraham is from, is called Ur of the Chaldees. And so what's interesting about biblical archaeology is that archaeology, let's remember this, this is a very young science. People have only been doing archaeology since, you know, in its current form, since the 1800s. Okay, so th this is not a new, I mean, this is not a really old thing where people are looking for manuscripts and, and trying to prove things historically. And so initially in the uh, Enlightenment period, which is the period, of course, of 1700s up until the late 1800s, uh, in which, you know, it was it's called the modern era in which everything was thought to be, uh, you have to be able to prove everything with scientific um, scientific method. Okay, so during this period, a lot of people said, well, we know the Bible can't be true because the Bible mentions like that Abraham's from the city Ur of the Chaldees, but that city doesn't actually exist. Like, where's Ur of the Chaldees? Well, then guess what? Then they started doing archaeology, and then they actually found Ur of the Chaldees, and it was exactly where the Bible said it would be. And then, then they went on. They said, oh, well, you know, the Bible talks about this Hittite civilization. Well, we don't know anything about a Hittite civilization. And then guess what? They found an enormous Hittite civilization right in the area where the Bible always said there was a Hittite civilization. And as we go through these things, as archaeologists have said, or you know, historians have said, oh, well, this can't be true because what the Bible describes doesn't match up with uh, anything we found. Well, then time goes on and they keep finding stuff. This is why it's so profitable to go to Israel and to see the things with your own eyes that are... Um, that are being discovered all the time. Like literally when I was there one year ago, we went to a town called Chorazim. Now Chorazim's mentioned in the Bible because it says that Jesus went there. He pronounced a woe over Chorazim. It was one of the areas where he preached. And so here's what's interesting. You go to Chorazim. The synagogue there is from the fourth century. Now it's pretty old, but it's definitely not as old as the time of Jesus. And then you go over a little bit further, and they had just discovered, like two months before we got there, an actual synagogue dating from the time of Jesus in another town called Magdala, which is just, um, you know, probably you've heard of Mary Magdalene, Mary of Magdala. So this is a, a town called Magdala, and they have discovered there a, a synagogue from the time of Jesus, and they have a stone that would have been used for preaching. They would have uh, stretched out the scroll of the Bible on this stone. And the stone actually has a depiction of the temple in Jerusalem uh, all around the sides of it. And that uh, depiction shows us that everything that we thought about the um, temple at the time of Jesus, this is an actual depiction of it. And it, so uh, all that to say, you know, you could go to, let's go to books like Daniel. Let's go to books like Isaiah. Let's go to books like uh, another good one is the book of Esther. And the reason they're good is because they begin by giving you detailed historical information. They give you a timestamp that says, in this year, which was the 10th year of this ruler, and then, of course, especially with the Babylonian stuff which and the Persian stuff, we have Persian and Babylonian history that's written separate, and those things line up exactly 
with what the Bible says. So I really think that your friend needs to, and I, I, I hope this doesn't sound caustic or rude because it's not meant to be, but I really hope that your friend would actually do a little research before he comes and says this and that because it seems that your friend is sorely uninformed uh, about the Bible. Well, I want to say two things. Number one, he he's doing everything to... Um, like you said, take strikes against it more than build it up. He told me that himself, and he's been doing that for 40 years, trying anything to go against it rather than to find anything in favor of it. And then the other thing I told him was, it just came to me by the Spirit, and tell me if I'm wrong today. Um, I said, well, you know, like the story of Abraham was written by Moses, I think, after Abraham had died. So, yes. therefore... Um, when things started to be put on, into Bible format, it doesn't mean that that's when it started, because Moses that's is talking cool. about Abraham from a long time ago. And then this, like, papyrus of Ani um, might have been written before Moses started writing, but he, because, like, this is what I told him, because word of mouth travels, and they, they, like back then, they knew that there was a man that killed his brother Abel, and they knew that there was that other guy that began with a J, I can't remember his name, that killed somebody and said, well, give me better protection. What was his name? Oh, I'm not remembering. Jared or something. But... Anyway, and so, so, like, yeah, so, there's, so he, there's... his argument was, well, there, there was, there was all this ethical stuff in the papyrus of Ani, like, don't kill, don't do this, don't do that. But it's because the word of mouth was traveling through that time before Moses started to write it down. Yeah, and there's there's so many things to talk about on this subject. Like, for example, I mean, here's the thing about your friend, right? It's like, look, I, I want to be respectful and all these things, but, um, you know, I myself and a lot of other people study these things at the university level, right? It, if, you, if you have already made up your mind and you're just taking things, you know, kind of, half-cocked a little bit and, and throwing them and saying, well, here's why the Bible's not true. I mean, consider the fact that people have been studying this at the university level, seriously, at the doctoral level, for a really long time. I'm getting my master's right now in integrated theology. Before that, I did a bachelor's in Christian theology. And we studied all of these things. I'll just leave you with two quick thoughts before we move on. One of them is in regard to um, the idea of oral history. Okay, first of all, oral history has been proven by anthropologists that in, in non-writing societies that oral history is very important and it's actually very, um, very reliable. Okay, so, so, you know, we always talk about like the telephone game, that if you pass on information after a few minutes, the whole information, the whole message gets changed. Well, that's because... We, are, we live in a society that doesn't, hasn't learned how to pass down things orally because we write things, right? And so if you do go and study anthropologically certain societies in the world today that still use only oral history, they're very accurate. And so the whole point is that this is also how history was passed down, not just biblical history. This is how all history was passed down for a really long time. And the other thing is that um, in Ur of the Chaldees, where Abraham was from, there they have found a library, which shows us that reading and writing cultures existed in Sumeria, which is where he was from. Now, what does that mean? That means that at the time of Abraham, 
there were actually writings that writing, probably Abraham himself knew how to write. Why? Because he was a wealthy person. He owned a lot of cattle, which in those days you didn't have stock, you had cattle. Okay, so he was a wealthy person, very likely that he knew how to read and write. And what that means is that he probably also took notes. So just because what we have in the Bible was written by Moses at his time, doesn't mean that Moses was just making this stuff up and going off of oral history even. Right, it, it could very well be and is very likely, and this is, by the way, one of the main theories about the origin of the Bible, is that Moses is working from documents that, um, that already existed. Okay, so the other point that I want to just say very quickly before we go to our next caller is that um, this idea that just because the papyrus of Ani says that you shouldn't kill people, that that discredits the Bible as if the Bible copied from them. Well, okay, this would be something which gets into a whole theological discussion about uh, human anthropology and epistemology, which is the study of knowledge. How do we know what we know? Okay, and here, here's basically the long and short of it. What the Bible teaches in Romans chapter 1, very clearly, is that everybody knows right and wrong. Everybody, the problem isn't that we don't know the right things to do. The problem is that we don't do the right things that we ourselves know we should do. And so this is called general revelation, and it's something which God has endowed human beings with, which means that... Um, should we be surprised that the Egyptians said not to kill people or that they had moral and ethical codes? Not at all. Nor are we surprised by Hammurabi's code. Nor are we surprised by the fact that there is overlap between them. I mean, these are basic things which God has built into us. Why? Because we are created in the image of God. And so there are a lot of things like you don't have to teach children how to lie. And you also don't have to teach people, um, you know, what things, what basic things are right and wrong? Everybody, whether they believe in God or not, agrees that it's not good to rape people. Okay, so the point just being that um, that does not at all discredit the Bible. In fact, it would, it would bear credit more to the theological things that the Bible teaches about the origin and nature of human beings and that we are ethical beings because we are created in the image of an ethical God. So I, I hope that answers some of your questions. There is so much out there on these topics. I would encourage you for a starting point. Go to and listen to the series I've done. I actually did two series. I'll tell you what they're both called. They're both on our church's website, which is whitefieldschurch.com, whitefieldschurch.com. Okay, then go hit the sermons button, and you'll, see, you'll be let, led to this page that has sermon series, and they're just the graphics, right? So click on these two sermon series, Download the whole thing, listen to them, share them with everybody. They're there for you to use and for free. And they are called, I Could Never Believe in a God Who, and there's nine under that. And there's another one called, The Trouble Is. And the idea behind that is, the trouble with Christianity or the trouble with believing in God is. And in that one, we do eight weeks in which we also look at many of these topics. And there's different topics in both series. So definitely go look at that. That's a great starting place. And from there, I mention other resources that can be used um, to, to research more on this topic. So thank you so much, Lori, for that very insightful question. I love talking about this stuff, and I pray that God would work in the heart and mind of your friend and that he would come to salvation. Amen. Let's go to our next caller, John in Thornton, Colorado. Hi, John. Welcome to the program. Hi, how's it going? Going great. Thanks for holding me. Okay, uh, my question is, uh, a pastor of mine said that the Bible never clarifies that we are allowed to defend ourselves in like life-threatening situations. 
And I know in Exodus, there's a passage where it mentions defending ourselves from a thief in the night. But if an event such as like getting attacked in broad daylight would happen, is it biblically correct to defend yourself with force if needed? And is, is there any Bible scriptures that mention this? Yeah, I don't know if there's any that mention it directly, but I would say that there are principles. And here, here are some of the principles that the Bible teaches. And this is actually the good thing about the Bible. Here, I'll just give you this thought, and then I'll, I'll answer your question directly. That some people have said, you know, wouldn't it have been easier if God would have given us the Bible in more of like a manual form, right? Like when you need to know how to fix your uh, dishwasher, you open up the dishwasher manual, you go in the index and you say, okay, uh, dishwasher's doing this. Here's the page that tells me how to fix that problem. Then I turn to that page. Some people would say, it'd be nice if the Bible was like that, right? Like it just answer all my questions uh, in that yeah. way. Is it okay to smoke pot? Is it okay to divorce my wife? Is it okay to punch somebody in the face, right? Like give me a page that gives me an article on that and then I'll know the answer and I won't have to think about it anymore. But instead of giving us a manual, God has given us something which is actually better. It may not be as satisfying in the moment, but it is better for us in the long run. And what that is, is that God in his word has not given us a manual. What he has given us is a principle. And these are pr many principles. Sometimes these principles are actually uh, overlapping principles, which means that here, here's, a, here's an example of this. Jesus goes into the temple one day and he sees people extorting other people in the temple and he gets angry and you know he says you should not be making money off the people of God and then he flips over the tables he makes a whip which always is the part that surprises me he takes some time right to make a whip so there's Jesus weaving this whip premeditating what he's going to do he makes this whip starts whipping people scaring them turning over their tables throwing their stuff Okay, on another instance, um, these people come and they ask Jesus to pay what's called the temple tax. And Jesus asks, he like turns to his disciples and he says, do you think that a father charges his sons, you know, for these things? And they say, no. And he goes, me neither. But so that we don't, you know, make a scene unnecessarily, just pay the dumb tax. Okay, so do you see what Jesus is doing? That in the one case, he's giving us an example that there, there's a case in which people are misusing money, misrepresenting God with money, and Jesus gets angry and throws things. On, on the other hand, um, you know, then you have Jesus saying, hey, you know what? This is a fight that we're not going to fight today. So just pay the tax. And the question is, those are like overlapping principles, right? So when it comes to certain things, are these, is it a time for us to turn over the tables or is it a time for us to just pay the tax so we don't cause a stir unnecessarily? And God's answer would be, see me for details, right? So his answer is not, um, you know, here's what to do in every situation in this way. Sometimes we get that, but a lot of times what he gives us is principles and sometimes those principles are overlapping principles, which means that, the advice sometimes is going to be, yes, defend yourself physically. And sometimes the advice is going to be, no, don't defend yourself. Okay? So I know that's not as satisfying as having me tell you the, the answer. But 
I will tell you that it is more useful to you in your relationship with God. Now, to give you an answer, I do think that there um, is a time and place for defending physically. I also think there's a time and place for defending others physically, but I think also defending yourself. And the reason is because the Bible has a lot to say, especially in the prophets, about God opposes evildoers and he supports victims, right? People who are being victimized. And he says, defend those who can't defend themselves. Well, what if you are somebody who can defend yourself? Well, then shouldn't you defend yourself? Right, because you can. So I would say there is precedent in principle. And I think there are a few other examples. If you hang on with me through the break, I'll, I'll give you a few examples of those. Okay. But, uh, all right, thanks for your question. Hey, you're listening to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Cady from Whitefields Church in Longmont. And we will be right back after our break for in two minutes' time. Welcome back to Calvary Live. Give us a call at 303-690-3000 or text us at 720-336-0897. Let's join Calvary Live right now. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Cady from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. I'm here with you today taking your calls and texts live on the air. This is the show where you can call in with your questions about the Bible or things going on in your life. We hopefully we can bring some clarity and we'd love to play for, uh, we'd love to pray for your prayer requests. Give us a call 303-690-3000. That's 303-690-3000 or text us at 720-336-0897. Let's go back to our our last caller. We were talking about the question of is it okay to ever defend yourself? So that was John in Thornton, Colorado. Hey John. Hey, I'm going. Good. So you know, obviously we have an example from Paul in which he defended himself legally. But I think that you're asking about, is it okay to defend yourself physically, right? Yes. Okay. So um, I'll give you a few examples that uh, we do see. For example, Abraham leading his men, which would be like, it's almost, almost like his own private army. These are people who worked for him as ranch hands. Uh, you remember that Lot got kidnapped? I believe this is Genesis 15 might be 14, but he, he, Lot gets kidnapped by some people who get caught up in this like war of different clans in the area where they're living. And Abraham gets all his people, it's Genesis 14. He mobilizes 318 trained men who had been born in his household, and he mobilizes them to go and capture, recapture Lot, who had been kidnapped, and his family. So there's an example of that. Um, let's see, Joash in Second Chronicles 23, verse 10, it says that, you know, he set all the people and he gave each one a weapon in his hand from the right side of the temple to the left side of the temple. Why? Their job is to defend the temple, right? Okay, so, um, you know, you could see so many examples, especially in the Old Testament, of people using force for good. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. And um, so, First of all, I'd say to the argument that the Bible gives no examples of people defending themselves physically, I would disagree. And, and where it says, you know, in uh, is it Matthew 5, you know, if your brother strikes you on the face, you know, slaps you or hits you, you know, strikes your cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now, let's be clear. Um, he says, if he slaps you on the right cheek. Now, just think through this physiologically with me. 
how do you hit somebody on the right cheek? There's only two ways. One is you hit them with your left hand. So if you're left-handed, you hit somebody on the right side of their face. Okay. The other way, and much more likely, is that it's a backhanded slap. Okay. So what, what Jesus is talking about when he talks about someone striking you on the cheek is not somebody punching you in the face as an assault. He's talking about an, someone offending you. Right? So we call it a slap in the face. And so what Jesus is saying, if someone offends you, then absorb the offense and let them offend you again. Right? Don't react in anger. Don't stoop to their level. Don't respond to sin with sin, but overcome evil with good. Right? Okay, so um, again, are there ever times to defend yourself? I would say yes, but here's where the argument gets interesting. Here's where I would tell you, you're going to need to go and read up on this topic beyond the amount of time that we have here. And this argument is a historical one amongst Christians dating back till at least the Reformation, but probably predating that as well. And it's the argument between what's called just war and pacifism. So the pacifism one is, is easier to look up, but of course, just war, look up that. It's a, it's a big discussion amongst the reformers. And there were two groups of reformers. Uh, there are more than two, but we're going to stick with the big two. On the one hand, you had what were called magisterial reformers. Now, magisterial reformers would be people like Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli. And for the magisterial reformers, what that meant is that they believed in the marriage of church and state. So, right, like Calvin's Geneva was, uh, he was the pastor and the mayor, you know, and the governor of the city. He was a civil and a religious leader. Same with Luther. That's how Luther believed that Germany should be set up, is that there should be Protestant states and there should be Catholic states. That's why Germany is the way it is even to this day. Same with Zwingli, right? It's the idea of he took up a sword and fought for his country. Um, on the other hand, though, you had what were called the Radical Reformation. Now, don't take that the wrong way because radical it makes it sound like they're like religious extremists Not a radical reformation the word radical refers to the heart and so um, it meant that the they believed in a reformation not of society but a reformation of the heart and these would be people like the puritans the anabaptists um, those are the only two i can think of right now okay but, but especially anabaptists is kind of the bigger picture like umbrella term for these people and anabaptists you know led to for example today modern baptists but also um, a few other groups that still exist this day like the amish and uh, the mennonites right come from anabaptist backgrounds um, as well as do quakers okay so they were anabaptists did not believe in the marriage of church and state they believed in the separation of church and state which of course is is our system here in the United States. Um, but more importantly, they believed that Christians should be pacifists and that what happened in the Old Testament was under a different kind of dispensation and that now God wants all Christians to be pacifists and never take up arms against each other or against even for their country. So for example, Mennonites today or people who come from Mennonite backgrounds, Anabaptist backgrounds, they will not join the military. They will not join the police force. They will not, um, they do not believe in using force of any kind. And so I would just encourage you read up on this topic 
It's really interesting. And there are a lot of really good arguments on both sides, the just war side and the um, pacifism side, Christian pacifism. Um, there's a really good book that was written, on, and it's written by an Anabaptist, so I don't actually agree with him. If you were to ask me personally, I fall on the just war side, which is why I would say that I do think you're totally justified in um, defending yourself physically if you're attacked. Um, but this guy wrote a pretty good book. His name is Preston Sprinkle. And he wrote a book on um, just war versus pacifism really recently. And he makes a really good case for Christian pacifism. But at the end of the day, I still disagree with him. So it, it would be worth your time, though, to read it. Okay, yeah, I, I understand. Cool. All right, God bless you, John. I hope that you don't have to hurt anybody. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. All right, bye-bye. Hey, you're listening to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Cady from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. I'm here with you today taking your calls and texts live on the air. This is a show where you can call in with your questions about the Bible or your prayer requests. We'd love to hear from you. Give us a call. Two open lines right now. 303-690-3000. or text us. 720-336-0897. Let's go to Pam in Baltimore, Maryland. Hi, Pam. Welcome to the show. Oh, Pam. Looks like Pam is still holding. I see is the latest I heard. So Pam, are you there? Okay, now we lost Pam apparently. Here's what Pam asked. Actually, you know what? I'm going to give Pam a second to uh, connect again. We'll come back to her question if we need it. But uh, I wanted to go over to a question that came in via text message that I thought you guys would find interesting. Okay, so here's a text question that came in. It says this. Pastor Nick, my name is also Nick. I have a biblical question. Jesus said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, so must the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. He also said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So we are taught that on Good Friday, Jesus was crucified, and on Sunday he was resurrected. How is that three days and three nights? Wouldn't that only be two days and two nights? Just something I have wondered about all these years of celebrating Resurrection Weekend that the math does not add up to me. Well, that is a really good question and a really good observation. And here's what I'll tell you. You're right. And here's how it adds up. I wrote, a, I wrote an article about this, by the way. It's on my website. If anybody wants the link to it, just text us here at the show, and I'd be happy to send you a link to this article. Um, and it, it kind of solves the, the problem. And here, I'll give you the text number if you'd like to text in. Just text me your email address, and I'll be happy to email you the article. Okay, the, the text line is 720-336-0897. That's 720-336-0897. Okay, so here's, here's I'll give you the short answer, and then I'll kind of expound on it a little bit, okay? The short answer is this, that Good Friday was actually on a Thursday. Now, I know that that's a bummer for some people who are like, what? I've always thought it was Good Friday. Well, Good Friday was actually on a Thursday. But look, over all these years, we have been celebrating it on Friday. That's what we've done culturally. And I think that it is wise for us to take advantage of cultural moments and cultural opportunities for the gospel. So if our culture recognizes a day called Good Friday, which they do, I mean, businesses are closed on Good Friday. Some businesses, not all. Um, and, of course, Easter Sunday was definitely on a Sunday. 
But but I can actually explain to you and, and prove to you that it was on a Thursday. Here's how. Um, and and the issue, some people say, well, doesn't Friday start at dusk on Thursday? Um, yeah, but it's actually a little bit more complicated than that. So, But it's not, it's not that complicated. Okay, let me explain it to you. Um, Jesus was crucified during the day on a Thursday. Let's put it that way. So it isn't just that, you know, Jewish days start at dusk the day before, right? That Friday begins at dusk on Thursday. It's actually more than that. It, it is that uh, Jesus was crucified during the day on a Thursday, not a Friday. Now, let me explain it to you. Um, the Jew Jewish calendar, first thing you need to know, the Jewish calendar is lunar, which means that it is based on the cycles of the moon. Whereas the Gregorian calendar, the Roman Gregorian calendar, which is what we use here in the United States and now around the world, is solar, and it's based on the rotation of the Earth around the sun. So that remember, Jew, Jews are working with a lunar calendar. We're working with a solar calendar. This is why, by the way, the day of Easter changes within a window every year because the day of Easter is based off of the Paschal full moon, Passover full moon. And that's why the day of Easter doesn't change on the lunar calendar every year, but it changes on the solar calendar, which is what we use. Now, we also, again, we do, we do tend to think of the new day as beginning when we wake up, but in the Jewish mind, the new day begins at sunset when you go to bed, which is interesting. It means that the day begins with rest, not ends with rest. So, um, we know that Jesus resurrected on a Sunday, which is called the first day of the week. That's from Matthew 28, Mark 16, and Luke 24. The first day of the week, which is Sunday, of course, also in the Jewish mind, because the last day of the week is Saturday, which is the day when they rest. Again, here's the other point. A Sabbath. What does Sabbath mean? Sabbath means rest, and it refers to a holy day when no work is done. Now, there is a regular Sabbath, and there's a thing called a special Sabbath. A regular Sabbath is every Saturday is a Sabbath day, meaning a holy day on which you rest. Now, furthermore, there are special Sabbaths. Now, special Sabbaths are like what we would have when we have a holiday, right? So we have Memorial Day, we have Labor Day. These would be called, in Jewish speaking, special Sabbaths. They're celebrated on specific calendar dates, no matter what day of the week that date falls upon. So, for example... We celebrate the 4th of July. We celebrate the 4th of July, whether it's on a Tuesday or whether it's on a, a Saturday or whether it's on a Thursday. It's always the 4th of July. And whenever that day falls, we take the day off, right? We get the day off work. So it's a special Sabbath, but it's based on the calendar year, not on the weekly rotation of days. Okay, so here, check this out. In John 19, verse 31, it says that the day on which Jesus was crucified was a special Sabbath. Here's a, Literally, I'll read it to you. It was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. A special Sabbath. What was the special Sabbath? The special Sabbath referred to here is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a holiday which is always observed on a calendar date, which is the 15th day of the Jewish month of Nisan. Okay, so according to Leviticus 24, verses 4 through 14, there were three special holidays in the month of Nisan. Passover, which is the 14th of Nisan. Then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the 15th to the 22nd of Nisan. And then the Feast, uh, the feast of First Fruits, 
which was held on the Sunday following Passover. Okay, so let me just bring this all up, okay? Jesus actually died, was crucified on a Thursday. Friday and Saturday were both Sabbaths because Friday was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Saturday was the weekly Sabbath because Saturday is always a Sabbath. So how can we be sure that this happened? Well, interestingly, the London Royal Observatory took on this challenge to see if Good Friday was actually on a Thursday. And this happened several years ago, but they took on the, th the challenge to see if they could calculate the days back in history and see if there was ever such a time around the time of Jesus when Passover would have fallen on a Thursday, meaning that the Friday following the Passover would be the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and therefore a Sabbath day. So again, since there's a Jewish calendar that's lunar, means the full moon is all, there's always a full moon on Passover. So it's really easy to figure that out. And not surprisingly, there were several dates, several years around the time of Jesus when that took place. Now that's not, not that surprising. It shouldn't be that surprising. It'd be like, hey, does uh, 4th of July ever happen on a, a Wednesday? Well, yes, every couple of years it happens on a Wednesday. Same thing. Does the Feast of Unleavened Bread ever happen on a Friday? Yeah, every couple of years. Uh, a few more interesting things. You know, Jesus is crucified on the day of preparation, which would mean the 14th day of Nisan, which would mean this. The, here, here's this really cool. According to Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 13, God told the Israelites that they were to select the Passover lamb on the 10th day of Nisan. Now remember, they select the lamb on the 10th day, they crucify, sorry, not crucified, they slay it or butcher it and eat it on the 14th day. And it was to be examined from the 11th day to the 13th day to make sure it was without blemish. And then, of course, sacrificed on the 14th. If the 14th was a Thursday, just do the simple math, count backwards in your mind. Jesus was actually crucified, right, on the day of preparation, which we're told in all four Gospels that it was on the day of preparation when Jesus was crucified. Uh, which would mean the 14th day of Nisan. So count backwards, when is the 10th day of Na Nisan? That is the day when Jesus entered Jerusalem on the back of a donkey on Palm Sunday. And which gate did Jesus enter through? It's called, wait for this, the Sheep Gate. But guess what? It also has another name. If you've been to Jerusalem, you'll know the Sheep Gate has two names. It's called the Sheep Gate and it's called the Lion Gate. That's like so cool that you, you're like, wait a second, who did that? Did the Christians come by and do that? Nope, nope, nope. Jewish people have always referred to these gates by two terms, the lion's gate and the, the, the sheep gate. The reason it was called the sheep gate is because this is the gate that's closest to the temple mount. And so they would lead the sheep in for the uh, Passover sacrifice in through this gate and they would have a market there. Uh, near the temple where they would sell the sheep for the sacrifices. Okay, so Jesus enters Jerusalem on the 10th day of Nisan, which is, according to Exodus 12, the day on which you select a lamb, and then the next three days, uh, Nisan 11, 12, 13, are for what purpose? To make sure that it is without blemish. So those are the days, that would be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, in, the, in this week, Holy Week, in which Jesus is examined. He goes down to the, um, the temple and people are coming and the Pharisees are giving him a hard time, right? They're, they're asking him all kinds of questions. They're testing him. 
and we see that Jesus passes the test. Okay, so this is pretty cool, right? And so, here's the other thing that's really cool. One last thing, and, and that's this. Jesus is raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That would mean that the Sunday after Passover, always, is called the Feast of First Fruits. That's Leviticus 23, verses 9 through 11, which means that Jesus resurrected on the, fe the Feast of First Fruits. And, and this is what Paul the Apostle is making reference to. And um, there in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then he says again later on, Christ, the first fruits, and then those who are coming. It's not only that Christ is the first to be raised from the grave back to eternal life, which we will be as well, but it is that he did so on the feast of first fruits. And as you look at this, you see this amazing correlation, right? These things that were, you know, rules made by the Jews and given to the Jews by God, you know, like a thousand years before Jesus ever was born. Jesus is born and he fulfills all of them perfectly. Every single one of them points to him. It is absolutely incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And, um, you know, one of my favorite passages that I have to read for you guys right now, just in light of this, is in Luke 24. I'm going to talk about this, this verse this Sunday at my church because we are doing a, um, a new series in which we're going to be studying the books of First and Second Kings. And here's what happens. Jesus is resurrected, okay? And on Easter Sunday, you remember some of his disciples were walking down a certain road called the road to Emmaus. And so as they're walking down this road, Jesus appears to them and he says to them, why are you guys upset? You know, they don't immediately recognize him. He says, hey, what are you guys so upset about? And they say, haven't you heard? Haven't you heard that, the, that our Lord was crucified and killed? You know, have you been living in a cave? How do you not know this? And he says, why are you surprised? And they say, what do you mean? And he says this, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And they're like, wait, what do you mean? And he says, wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And check this out, Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The things concerning himself in Moses and all the prophets. Moses refers to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, which contain the Jewish law. So Jesus is saying that the Jewish law, the book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, these things were all about him. And he's helping them to see that. And then it says later on, you know, so that's just to a few disciples. Later on, Jesus comes to the place where they're all eating dinner, all the disciples who source except for Judas. And here's what he says. He said to them, verse 44 of Luke 24, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What Jesus is saying, what Jesus is showing, is that the Bible is about him. It means that when you read Leviticus, what's it about? Well, it's about ceremonies and sacrifices. But underneath all that, ultimately it's about Jesus. And we see that so clearly in the events of Holy Week. And it's a bit unfortunate that uh, some people over time have gotten the days mixed up and they 
think that Good Friday is on a Friday when actually it should be called Good Thursday. Um, I, I just talked to some people in Ukraine this past week, and they said that there are places in Ukraine actually where they do celebrate Good Thursday instead of Good Friday because they obviously have uh, done this research and math. So anyway, all that to say, I hope that answers your question. I know it kind of blows things up for us to think, okay, Good Friday was actually a Thursday, but uh, it's so cool when you see how it all lines up and how, um, and how it works with the Old Testament. So thank you for that question. God bless you. If anybody wants a link to that article, I'd be happy to send it to you. Just text me at 720-336-0897, and I'll send you a link. We've got five, six minutes left in the show. We could have time for one more caller if anybody has a call real quick. The number to call is 303-690-3000. It's 303-690-3000, or we could... Uh, take your text messages at 720-336-0897. Uh, we have a text message came in from Teresa. Teresa says, thank you for your ministry. In regard to the word Trinity, the Bible has quite a few times the word Godhead. For the sake of the body of Christ, shouldn't we use the word Godhead, like the Bible reads, instead of the word Trinity? Thank you, Teresa. Hey, Teresa, yeah, I'm I'm fine with that. But I think that the word Trinity has been chosen for a purpose. You know, there are a lot of um, terms that we use that aren't necessarily in the Bible, and yet they are biblical concepts. So it's something that the Bible teaches, even if the Bible doesn't use the word. And, you know, the idea of the Trinity is one that developed over a long period of time. And I wouldn't say that it developed over a long period of time. I'd say it has, uh, it has been confirmed over a long period of time. And Christians have agreed on that term. There were church councils about it, like the Council of Chalcedon, for example, was a big one in that regard. Um, so I think, sure, we can use the word Godhead, but let's be clear that when we say Godhead, what we mean is that the Bible teaches throughout that there is one God in three persons, co-equal and co-eternal. Um, I'd encourage you to look up the Athanasian Creed. It's called the Athanasian Creed, and it's a great uh, historical summary of what we believe as Christians about the Trinity and are about the three-in-one Godhead. So I hope that helps, Teresa. God bless you. Let's go to our next caller, Emmanuel in Philadelphia. Emmanuel, welcome to the program. Hey, how are you? Doing well. What's up? Yeah, I, I have a question, you know. Um, it's been on my heart. Um, what, what is it? Uh, whenever uh, I stumble, on stumble and fall, I, I have a tendency just to uh, be hard on myself. How can I avoid um, being hard on myself? Because I know the Holy Spirit can convict me, but um, me and myself being hard on myself, uh, uh, it doesn't really help. I, I, I do really have the heart. For God, it's just, you know, I just really uh, think that, like, you know, I'm backsliding more and more. Mm. Yeah, well, there's, there's a couple of things I'd tell you, but tell me a little bit more about what you um, what you understand to mean by, like, what do you mean when you're being hard on yourself? Well, um, I just feel so that uh, I, I delay myself in praying, praying to God for forgiveness. I 
I still have a tendency to try to work my way, quote unquote, to uh, earn God's forgiveness when in fact it's not the case. I, I still have that subconsciously um, to work for my forgiveness, which it doesn't work like that. I know I have to pray to God for forgiveness. Right. Here's what I tell you. The fact that you believe Jesus is a savior implies the fact that he saves you. And here's the good news about that, that if he is the one who earns your salvation, then you're not going to be the one to lose it, right? So he is holding on to your hand. Let's put it, think about it like this. I have a four-year-old daughter. Sometimes I walk down a busy street with her. We have a busy street near where we live. Now, I always hold her hand. I tell her, hey, hold on to daddy's hand. Now, from her perspective, she's holding on to my hand. But from my perspective, I know that if her grip is weak, if uh, she has a moment where she gets scared and lets go, or foolishly tries to let go and run off in a different direction, I know that my grip on her is much tighter than her grip on me. And so I want to encourage you with that. God's grip on you is much tighter than your grip on him. And even when your grip gets weak, even when you might even want to dash off in a different direction, this is the good news of the gospel, that God loves you so much that he has got you in his hand and he's holding you tighter than you're holding him. That's really good news. And I would just encourage you, remember that it's Jesus who paid the price for your sins. He saved you. You didn't save yourself. Therefore, you're not going to lose it. So keep turning to him. Keep trusting in him. Just be thankful for what he's done. God bless you. Hey, you've been listening to Calvary Live. My name is Nick Cady from Whitefields Church in Longmont, Colorado. Check us out online, whitefieldschurch.com. And check out my articles, nickcady.org. God bless you. Have a great evening. You've been listening to Calvary Live. Tune in next time for prayer and God's word.